Good morning, church family. We have been in a series uh, called More Than Thunder. We're in John chapter 12. There's this moment when Jesus says, take this hour from me. Like Jesus is like, God, the hour's coming. Will you take it from me? And then in the prayer, Jesus like changes his mind or he like understands what reality is. Like, no, don't take this hour from me. This is why I came. This is what I'm here for. And it says God spoke a word over him and it sounded like thunder. It was like that moment stamped with the last few days of the life of Jesus would be the voice of God spoke and then the next few days would happen and then Jesus would die on a cross. And this morning, Easter Sunday, we get to celebrate the greatest story ever told. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, which in a way we celebrate every Sunday, in a way we respond to every day of our lives. But Easter Sunday is like the Super Bowl for preachers. Like if we mess this Sunday up, we need to question whether this is our calling or not. Jesus rose from the dead. And I just want you to know how glad I am that you are here today. I don't care if you've been stepping into this church for 45 years, or if this is the first time you've been in a church for years, either because of church hurt, or because of anger against God, or maybe denying God, or maybe just complacency in life. I'm just glad you're here. I don't care this morning if you were on time or if you were 10 minutes late because you were wrestling with whether you wanted to come to church or not, or you were in Starbucks line. I'm just... I'm just glad you're here. And for you to know, if you ever come to this church again, as long as there is a Lillard or an Eaton in this church, you probably will not be the last person into a worship service <laughs> in this church. We're just, we are just so, so glad you're here. And I love those two families, all right? We have been in the middle, or we just ended an 84-hour prayer effort. From Wednesday night at 8 p.m. until this morning at 8 a.m., there was a round-the-clock prayer, unbroken prayer happening in the life of this church. Most of those prayers were prayed right here in this room. So where we are right now, where those of you are watching in or you're on live stream and you're with us in this room, there's been prayer happening around the clock. From 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. the last few days, people have been praying off-site. And I read through the journals this morning. I had the last hour of our 84 hours this morning. I read through the journals. I read through the boards that we responded to with things we're grateful for and things we're crying out for. And my heart was so touched of the many prayers that were prayed over the last 84 hours. Prayers for yourself, prayers for the next generation, prayers for children to come to Jesus, for adult children who are far from God to come back to God. God heard prayers. Many of you wrote in journals how God answered prayers. Like, I, I am so grateful. So this morning, we are celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in a place that for 84 hours, there have been voices and hearts crying out to God. I never sleep well on Saturday nights. Never. All right? Some of it, I just, I love my job. I always, I love what I get to do every Sunday morning. This morning, I, I, I slept pretty good. Uh, I mean, I, at 2.15, I woke up. And I thought to myself, oh, man, Jim Hinkle is praying right now. 3.15, I woke up again, and I thought to myself, oh, Mark Hickman's praying right now. 4.15, I woke up. I knew Leslie Irwin was praying right now. And I don't know if they were praying over me in that moment or not, but there was something about being able to offer them up and knowing there was a voice and a heart in this church praying for you. Now, our brother Mark Hickman, uh, he was scheduled to pray this morning at 3 a.m. He ended up praying the first night at 3 a.m. because he thought that's when he was supposed to pray. Then he thought he was supposed to pray yesterday at 3 a.m. So Mark Hickman is now the official 3 a.m. Sycamore View prayer, all right? So if you need some 3 a.m. prayers, will you just toss them to Mark Hickman at 3 a.m.? He'll be lifting those up for you. We step into what we call a church building today. We don't call it a cathedral, but when you think about the word cathedral, what do you think of? You probably think about magnificent architecture. Some of these have been around for hundreds of years. They're beautiful. 
Many of them function more like museums today. I mean, there are places you go and it's like historical things, maybe even more than it functions like a church today. But if you ever go to London, whether you went there to see St. Paul's Cathedral or not, you're going to probably see St. Paul's Cathedral somewhere in London. It's there. You're going to see it. If you ever go to Manhattan, you, you probably won't go there because you want to see St. Patrick's Cathedral. But if you're walking around Manhattan, at some point you're going to probably walk by or see St. Patrick's Cathedral. As I was looking at different cathedrals, there's one that down in Colombia, this is a, a Sipadica uh, um, a Cathedral. And what is so cool about this one, it was built, uh, it's literally an underground church. It was built in the tunnels of a salt mine. Where when you go to church, you walk through tunnels that take you 200 meters underground where you go through what's not the stations of the cross, but it's much like the stations of the cross where you go through the station of the birth of Christ and then a station with parts of the life of Christ and then you have a station that's about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. How cool would that be to go to that church? And then there's one in Brazil, the Cathedral of Basilia. And this is a really unique one. And some of you, you see that image right there, and you're like, there's no way that's a cathedral in Brazil. That's a cathedral in Area 51, right? Like, if aliens ever come to Earth, that's probably where they're going to go to worship God. Now, this may be hard to see, but I want you to see this picture of these redwoods. This is in California. And what happened in this place is hundreds of years ago, there was a redwood tree that fell. It died. It fell. And where it fell, the roots and, and things that were around the root, it sprung up nine other trees that have grown in a circle. So I want you to think about the image of a mother tree that died, and its death sprouted up nine trees that have now grown in a circle. And just think about legacy of faith. For mothers and fathers who surrendered a life to Jesus, maybe for like their first generation Christians, and their death, their life, the way they live, even in their death, is springing up generation after generation, surrendering lives to Jesus. And this morning we celebrate a story where there was a death of Christ that has given birth to the church, like in a circle, surrounding Surrounding Jesus, surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that is built. And if you ever go out to the Redwood Forest in California, do you know what they call this? The cathedral tree. Where every Easter Sunday, there are groups of people who travel to the cathedral tree to worship Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And even the death of Jesus didn't kill Jesus, didn't kill the movement, launched the movement that is still growing to this day. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 20, and we're going to get there in just a moment. But I want you to hear just a few characters in the Gospel of John after Jesus died. After his death, you have a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. And he was so committed. His love for Jesus was that even in his death, he wanted to be the one. Like he had a tomb that was close by, so he wanted to take the body of Christ and put it, place it in a tomb. So you have Joseph of Arimathea, and John's the only one who also tells you that this guy named Nicodemus was also there with Joseph of Arimathea. Now these are two men who I think are honored for what they did. To take Jesus' body, this was an act of courage, this was an act of bravery, like it probably took a little money, all right? You have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and I don't think John's taking a cheap shot at him, but in John chapter 19, when he describes what Joseph of Arimathea did, what he says is this, he was a disciple of Jesus, but he was a secret one. 
And what he says about Nicodemus is this Nicodemus, oh, and just so you remember in John chapter 3, it's like John saying this. Oh, in John chapter 3, he's the one that went to Jesus at night. And I hope that Joseph of Arimathea and I hope Nicodemus ended up living their faith out loud. But the way they're described at the end of John 19 is a secret disciple and one who wanted to go encounter Jesus at night, not in the day because he didn't want his friends to see him with Jesus during the day. And I hope that there's something in this day that you encounter in Jesus that will tell you it's not our right to be a secret disciple. All right, we're not those who just go to Jesus when no one else is watching, like we live our faith out loud. John chapter 20, and John says there's only one woman at the tomb, and it's Mary Magdalene. And this is a woman that we're told in the Gospels that she had seven demons. Like this is a woman, if you've ever watched The Chosen, The Chosen begins, like episode one of The Chosen is the story of Mary Magdalene, a woman who was so overcome by demon possession and evil, like it it stripped her, it took her away from all of her friends and her social life, and Jesus made her well. And Mary Magdalene is the woman who was there with Jesus. And Mary Magdalene runs to get Peter and John. So in John, you also have Peter and John who come running to the tomb, and they see that Jesus isn't there, so they go running back to their house And in John, what you have is this woman, Mary, who wasn't just the first one at the tomb. She's the one who's just left at the tomb as well. John chapter 20, verse 11, it says this. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And in this moment, I don't think Mary believed Jesus arose from the dead. She just thinks something's happened to his body. Someone stole his body. There hadn't been a proper burial yet, no funeral yet. Like, what has happened to the body of Jesus? What has happened to the body? Uh, One of my preacher buddies for a number of years was Josh Patrick. Some of you remember him, you know him. Died from cancer just a few years ago. I was in a preacher group with Josh that we met up every year. And one year we were telling our funniest, craziest preacher stories. And Josh told one that for the years after that, every time we would get together, that's the story we wanted Josh to retell. When Josh first felt a call in the ministry, he was a, he was a teenager, and the brother Bob, who was a preacher at the time, took Josh under his wings, and brother Bob would take Josh to hospital visits and wanted to teach him how, just about sermon writing and, and what it means to work at a church. Like, he just like, get in my back pocket, and I want to show you what life as a preacher is like. And one morning, Brother Bob said, hey, Josh, today we're going to a funeral. I'm doing a funeral. You're going with me. So they got in his Oldsmobile 88. They drove to this funeral, and it was in one of those old southern churches of Christ. Small little worship center, wooden pews. It's one of those up on the stage. There was that one wooden seat. It's the on-deck circle of churches, right? It's where you go to sit before you did your opening prayer, your closing prayer, maybe prayers for communion. It was, it was right there. And even though it was only meant for one person, Brother Bob was like, you and me are going to sit there together. Even though Josh had no responsibility in the funeral, Brother Bob wanted him to sit in the place of a leader. So they sat there, they sang a couple of songs, and then Brother Bob stood up to preach a funeral for Sister Shubel. And he started saying some things about God. And then the Brother Bob started saying a few things about Sister Shubel. She was a very kind woman, and Sister Shubel was encouraging, and she was a good friend. And Josh could look out, and there's mainly older people there, and they looked a little agitated, and they were looking at each other. And then all of a sudden, Brother Bob stopped mid-sentence. And the Brother Bob said, let's bow our heads and pray. 
And people bowed their heads to pray, and when they bowed their heads to pray, Brother Bob turned around, grabbed Josh by the hand, left the church, got in the car, and started to drive off. Every preacher has had this moment at some point in their life where it's like, man, I just don't feel like this is going well. Bow your heads and pray and just bounce. Just leave, all right? They just left. They got in the car and they started driving off. And Josh is like, Brother Bob, what just happened? And Brother Bob said, it's because of, it's because of Sister Shubel. And Josh was like, what do you mean it's because of Sister Shubel? And Brother Bob said, she was there. And Josh said, I know she was there. The casket was right in front of us. And she, he said, no, Sister Shubel was in the fourth row. I don't know who was in that casket. <laughs> and in the casket, <laughs> either two things happened in this moment, right? One, the power of the resurrection of Jesus brought Sister Shubel back to life and put her back in her pew on the fourth row. Or he was preaching the wrong funeral which was true, is actually Sister Swanson who had passed away, not Sister Shubel. Which close works really well in horseshoes, but not if you're a preacher doing a funeral, all right? You need to get that one right. So, I mean, imagine Mary at the tomb, and she doesn't know what has happened to the body of Jesus. There's really been no proper burial. There's been no funeral yet, and now she doesn't know where his body went. And based by what she says in a few verses that we're reading John chapter 20, like, she doesn't believe in the moment that Jesus rose from the dead. She thinks somebody has stolen the body. Like, where did the body go? And there's confusion right there. So here are three truths I want us to believe today. Three truths that go all the way back to Genesis. It's this sequence that's played out in chapters, the first three chapters of Genesis, and it's played out throughout all of Scripture, all the way to this day. Here are three truths, and three, this is a sequence. I want you to get this. The first one is this. The world is good. When God created the world, sometimes when we read our Bible, sometimes when preachers preach the Bible, it's like we start in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. The Bible doesn't begin with the fall. The Bible begins with God creating a world, setting it in motion, creating a community. There is a marriage, and God claims all of it as good. This is how the sequence goes. The world is good. And even when you're surrounded by a lot of evil in the world, the world is good. And sometimes we need reminders of goodness. Here's this video. You've probably seen this on social media before. Now it's uh, in a commercial. A commercial is that thing that plays in TV shows. You know what I'm saying? And you've probably seen this. Images like this just capture, like sometimes we need that to be what captures our imagination. Like there is good in the world. There's goodness in the world. And you know why? Because God's in the world. Because God's people are in the world and God's people are supposed to model and live out the goodness of God. The world is good. The second truth is this. The world has fallen. The world is evil. Right? This is just a truth. The world is good. This is how Genesis goes. The world is good and the world has fallen. And we're reminded of this every time we see somebody wearing a New York Yankees jersey or hat. We're reminded there's evil in the world. They are the evil empire, right? I'm reminded of this every time one of you send me text messages that has an image of something like this. <laughs> of Cowboys Super Bowl pictures. And some of you, you don't even know where that thing right there is. You're like, is that what they use in the Oregon Trail, you know, back in the days to like record information? I'm reminded... And, and sometimes I even, like when it comes to falling, it's like, how do we even talk about the a world that's fallen, the world is evil? We're reminded when there are mass shootings, there's war, addiction, 
And sometimes we're reminded of how evil the world is or that the world has fallen. It's a lot easier to point at things that are fallen than to deal with the evil that's inside of us, right? The world is good and the world is evil. And here's the third thing. The world is redeemable. It's redeemable. From the moment the fall happened, God began setting in motion redeemability. God didn't give up on the garden he created. God's going to restore the world to the garden he created. It is redeemable. Some of my favorite words to pray and to preach are words like redeem and restore and reclaim. Like, this is what our God has been doing since the moment the fall happened. Some of you remember watching Extreme Home Makeover where Ty and his crew, every show, what they would do is they would, like, surprise a family. You're going to get a new house. And then sometimes they would start from scratch. And then there are other times where they repair what the house is, but they turn it into something that is brand new. And God does both. When it comes to salvation, it's not that God takes you who may be good and tries to make you a little better. It's that God takes people who are dead and He makes them alive. It's death to life. But then there's a God who's at work in our lives through any form of brokenness or insecurity for the rest of your life to redeem anything that doesn't reflect the goodness of God. God is working in this world for every form of evil to redeem that evil in some way. Here's a quote. Here's here's how one person says it. They say it like this. The most wonderful thing in the world is not the good that we accomplish, but the fact that good can come out of evil that we do. I've been struck, for example, by the numbers of people who have been brought back to God under the influence of a person to whom they had some imperfect attachment. And I love this right here. Our vocation is, I believe, to build good out of evil. For if we try to build good out of good, we're in danger of running out of raw material. Now, I think this author would even say that they would much prefer for there to be no evil in the world, but that it is a good reminder that in our own lives and who God has called the church to be in the world is that good can come out of evil. God can form and shape good out of anything. So Mary is standing there at the tomb by herself weeping. And Jesus says four things. And here they are. We're going to go through each one of them. The first thing Jesus says to Mary is Jesus says, Why are you weeping? She doesn't know it's Jesus yet. She's weeping at the tomb. Angels meet her at the tomb. Angels ask, why are you weeping? She responds to the angel and she turns around and there's Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. And he says, why are you weeping? And I want you to notice, Jesus in the moment doesn't say stop weeping. Like just be glad and be happy, I'm alive. Like he could have started out with that. Instead he says, why are you weeping? Jesus modeled a life of not just snapping his fingers and making things better, but practicing compassion in which he would step into the lives of people and actually help them process some of the brokenness in their lives. He modeled this so well. And there are times where Jesus asked questions like, what do you want me to do for you? Or in this case, why are you weeping in order to get some rawness out of people? And I don't want to make too much out of this because the Gospel of John doesn't make too much out of this. But the first thing Jesus says in the Gospel of John after he rises from the dead and we have him encounter someone else is, why are you weeping? It's acknowledging that there's brokenness. 
And for some of you, maybe what you need to hear from the, the risen Jesus today is asking you in your own life, with your own brokenness and insecurities, hearing Jesus say, why are you weeping and knowing that Jesus' ears are open to hear what you have to say? The second thing Jesus says is, who are you looking for? So the first one is, why are you weeping? The second is, who are you looking for? It's not, what are you looking for, but who are you looking for? Like, who is it you're looking for? Here at Sycamore View on Tuesday nights, we have Celebrate Recovery. They meet at 6.30. One of my favorite things about Celebrate Recovery is anybody who participates in a leadership role in Celebrate Recovery, whether they're leading a prayer, walking people through eight principles, walking people through the eight Beatitudes, what they do is when they stand up in front of the crowd is they say, they start with their name, like my name is Josh, and then they claim the truth of God. So it may go something like this. My name is Josh, and I'm a child of the Most High God. And I struggle with insecurities, anxiety, whatever else there may be. And that's the flow. It's who you are in God, then it is what you struggle with. Because what happens in life when we get that backwards? What happens in life when we reverse that? Because we live in a world and a culture that reminds us all the time, you're not thin enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not young enough, you're not wealthy enough, you're not healthy enough. Don't put that on Instagram because it's not good enough. Like we have all these voices reminding us of that. And then if we listen to all those voices, it gets really cloudy for you to hear the truth of what Jesus is speaking over your life. So I hope this will be a day that you're like, you know what I need to practice in my life? Who is it that God says I am? And through the truth of who God says I am and who Jesus is, then let me help that truth process the suffering in my life instead of being surrounded by the suffering where it may block your ears from hearing the truth of God in your life. Jesus says, uh, like, who are you looking for? Knowing that he's the answer to that, right? Because all our lives, when it comes to reaching for success and reaching for something better, we can reach for all different things, but nothing will satisfy until we're reaching for Christ. The third thing Jesus says is this, it's just one word. Jesus says, Mary. That's it. Everything Jesus says to that point Mary didn't know it was the voice of Jesus. And then when she hears Jesus speak her name, it's like, it's Jesus. She heard the voice say, why are you weeping? She heard the voice say, who are you looking for? But there was nothing about that that like, opened her eyes like, this is Jesus. But when he spoke her name, something happened. In Isaiah chapter 43, there's this chapter in your Bible where God says he calls his own people by their name. In John chapter 10, there's this place where Jesus says, I know my sheep, I know my people, I call them by name. So when God is calling you or speaking to you, it's not just like, hey brother, or hey sister, or hey you, or hey, hey buddy. God knows your name. And maybe if there's this one word you hear from God today, it may be knowing that God knows your name, like God speaks your name, Mary. And the fourth thing Jesus says to Mary is, go and tell. Like, go and tell. Like what you've just experienced isn't for you to put in a cage or put in a box or keep to yourself. Like this is for other people to know. Specifically, it's go and tell my brothers. Go and tell the apostles 
And I wonder if Mary, in a way, wanted to respond like, I already ran to them once today. Do you really want me to go run again? Like, she already went to tell them that the tomb was empty. Like, his body wasn't there. And now Jesus says, go back to it. Go and tell. All right, so here's how I want to encourage you today. When it comes to go and tell, is be willing to pray a prayer that goes like this. God, this week, will you use me for your glory? and then be willing to step into moments that God gives you. A few years ago, Casey and I, we were, we were taking a cruise celebrating an anniversary. And, and even when we travel, like Casey and I, a lot of times we're like, okay, we're going on this trip, but we want to be kingdom people on this trip. So God, whatever opportunities you have for us, may we step into them. The end of day one, the housekeeper in our cab met us in the hallway and stopped us and said, oh, can I ask you a question? We're like, sure. And the guy said, are you believers? And we were like, believers, like, do we have faith? Are we people of faith? Are we believers in Jesus? He said, yes, are you believers in Jesus? And when he said it, there was a little pride in me. Because the pride was, I knew right by the bed, I'd already set out, there was my Bible, and there were the three or four books I brought to read that week, and they were all books about theology and the spiritual life and faith and Christian life. And I thought, he probably saw my books, he saw my Bible, and that's why he knows but we responded to him. We were like, why, why did you even ask? And then he looked at Casey. And he said, because man, when you talk to me today, you look me in the eye. And I could see in your eyes, and he wasn't being flirtatious. He said, I could see in your eyes that there's something different about you, that Jesus lives in you. And I've known my wife for over 22 years, and the first time I looked into her eyes, I could say the same thing. But in the moment, I was a little offended and a little jealous. I was like, dude, I looked you in the eye earlier today too, man. And like, I think the rest of the trip, I walked down that hallway like this right here. Like, <laughs> you see Jesus in these eyes? <laughs> There's one day I was in the cabin on, the, on that trip, and I was just reading Luke chapter 14, and I was, God, how do you use this for your glory? And this doesn't always happen to me, but I've sensed from the Lord, like, okay, hey, Josh, you're reading this in your cabin. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go... And it was very specific. I want you to go to Lounge 5 on the fifth deck. And I want you to read this chapter there and just see what I'm going to do. And I was kind of messing with my head. I was like, okay, is this God or is this me? And then I thought, well, if it is the Lord or if it's just me, let me just act out of obedience and see what happens. This was a day where people were already off the ship. Like they're out doing all these tours and who knows what so I go to lounge five nobody's in lounge five except the bartender and he's back there like cleaning glasses getting ready for everybody coming back on the ship so I just I just sit down with Luke chapter 14 looking out the window probably have earbuds in my ears listening to Hillsong United or something like that and I'm just kind of in my zone for about 20 minutes and I was about to leave when I felt a tap on the shoulder and when there was a tap on the shoulder I thought bartender man was going to come and engage me but it wasn't bartender man this is a man in his late 50s, early 60s. He said, sir, can I ask you what you're reading? I said, yeah, man, I'm, I'm reading the Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible, but in the Bible, there are four books in the Bible that talk about the life of Jesus. And I'm reading one of those called Luke. He said, do you mind if I sit down for a minute and talk about this with you? So he sat down and we talked a little bit about Luke 14. I was just explaining a few things. He said, man, can I just share with you in my life? He said, I was a chaplain in the Navy for about 20 years. And he said, and then I walked away from my faith. 
It just, it was too hard. There were questions I had about God. I'd seen too much suffering. He said, I just walked away from it all. And he said, just recently, over the last few months, I feel God working in my life again. And now I'm walking on this cruise ship and I come into this lounge and you're sitting here reading a Bible. And we started talking about, one of my favorite things to talk about with people, as weird as it may sound, is just faith and suffering and faith and doubt and where is God when it hurts. And we just started processing some of, some of that and we prayed and I, I didn't get his information. I haven't seen the man since. I just want to encourage you that when you pray prayers and we pray prayers of God use us for your glory, these aren't just prayers God answers for preachers, for church leaders and pastors. For us to say God use us for your glory and then we're willing to see the opportunities God places right in front of us, go and tell. I want you to see two more things in John. One is this. When Jesus says, uh, when Jesus says, why are you weeping? And Jesus says, uh, who are you looking for? It tells you in John. It says that she thought he was a gardener. And I don't know what it was about Jesus in the moment that made her think he was a gardener. I don't know if he was carrying tulips and weeds or had dirt under his fingernails. She thought he was a gardener. John is the only one of the four gospel writers who tell you something about where Jesus was buried and when he rose from the dead, that there was a garden that was there. Now here's the deal. If you make notes in your Bible, I want you to circle it. Because John begins his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, In the beginning. Like John wants you to know that Jesus is coming and Jesus is, this is a new Genesis. This is Genesis again. Just as God created in the very beginning, Jesus is creating again right now. And I think this is a wink on the part of John. I think he's like winking at you as he writes it. Like she thought he was a gardener and in a way he was a gardener. Because what the resurrection of Jesus has done is the resurrection of Jesus has set, in, set forth this motion, this movement of God that is going to repair the garden that was broken in Genesis 1 and 2. It was broken. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. And now Jesus is going to repair the world to take back everything Satan has tried to take from God. And then what happens when Jesus speaks the name Mary, and I want you to see this, and this is, going to, this is what's going to stay on the screen for just a few minutes for you. When Jesus speaks the name Mary, it says she turned to him. She heard the voice. She turned to the voice. She heard the voice. She turned to the voice. And for some of you today, the voice of Jesus has been coming for you at you for years and you've rejected it or, or ignored it, have moved away from it, or maybe you haven't turned to it. And maybe the voice of Jesus is coming to you and it's about salvation and surrendering a life to Jesus. And maybe the voice of Jesus is coming to you to just take a deeper faith, another step in a deeper faith with Christ. When you hear the voice today, will you turn to the voice? Leslie Weatherhead paints this image of the blessings of God and the way she paints it is like this. She says, I want you to imagine that the very top of the mountain there is a stream. And that stream of water is flowing down the mountain. But then somebody comes along and tries to build a dam. Tries to build some kind of barrier to keep the water from flowing down. And it may work for a moment. But pretty soon gravity is going to win out. And whatever blockage was created to try to stop the stream, gravity is going to win out. And that stream is going to make its way down the mountain. 
through the resurrection of Jesus, the blessings of God and the will of God has been set forth in this world and it is flowing down that mountain and evil comes along and sometimes we come along to set up blockages and barriers but those blessing of God it's going to win out it's going to keep flowing down that mountain it's going to keep flowing into your life and to this world as God repairs all things this is what the resurrection of Jesus has done so this morning if you need prayers for surrender prayers for healing Prayers that God would remove those blockages from the will of God and the blessings of God flowing into your life. My wife Casey's going to be right over here to my right. Laura Moore is going to be over here to my left. Reggie Lee, one of our shepherds, will be up front to my right. We'll have another shepherd in the back, and I'll be over here to the left. We're here to pray for you and with you and over you. And this morning, we get to participate in the bread and the cup as a united church moving to the table, moving away from the table. We get to join with millions of brothers and sisters around the world today who are declaring through this meal that the resurrection of Jesus has set all things right. Will you bow your heads, close your eyes. For Jesus, we give you thanks today. God, we thank you that Jesus didn't stay dead that you fulfilled your promise. Something only you could do. He couldn't bring himself back to life. You had to bring him back to life. And the way you did for Jesus is what you will do for all of your people. So God, it's because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus that we know the day is on its way when cancer will be no more. There will be no more brokenness in relationships, no more hurting joints, no more chronic pain, No more wars, no more shootings, mass shootings. God, the day is on its way when you're going to set all things right. And we're praying for you to send deposits of that truth into this day. God, may it start with us. Set our hearts right. May we hear your voice today. And as we do, may we turn to you. And Jesus, through the bread and the cup this morning, we thank you for your obedience, for all you have done for us. Thank you. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.